On the 1st of September 1939, 25-year-old Malvern resident Lorna Lloyd started writing her diary of the war. This is episode 4. It is November 1939. Thursday, November 30th, 1939. This has been a hateful year, and it seems as though the ushering in of the last month of it is symbolic. Today, using the tactics that the Nazis have made so nauseatingly familiar, Russia has attacked Finland on the plea that the tiny state menaced Leningrad. 1939 has seen the fall of four independent nations, one after another, Czechoslovakia in March, Albania on Good Friday, Poland, and now Finland. And the anarchists still pretend that we are not justified in taking up arms to defend what is left. Not justified, ye gods. I wonder... Has humanity always been so hateful, so utterly ruthless, so sickeningly hypocritical? Or are we just unlucky? Helsinki has been bombed and 200 civilians killed and wounded. A bomb also fell on a hospital. But of course, by the rules of this new morality, which the apostles of peace and progress in Moscow and Berlin are teaching us, such things are of no account whatsoever, simply not worth recording and the deep and righteous anger of all the ordinary simple people who see in the dead the prototypes of themselves, mere pawns in the dirty game played by demagogues and careerists, never achieves its object. Because those who are really guilty, those who plan and order these massacres, are never caught and punished, at least not in this world. Malvern Gazette, 25th November 1939. Uncontrolled. The ARP exercises at Malvern on Sunday, although carried out with as much realism as possible, were not without their humorous incidents. Tense faces at the report centre were awaiting details of casualties and incidents towards the close of the raid when a report was received that the controller's house had been struck by explosive and incendiary bombs. An exclamation, Let it burn! relieved the tension to which the personnel had been subject for two hours. Sunday, December 3rd, 1939. Finland still resists strongly. The Finns have retaken Petsamo, which the Russians seized on Saturday. Russian losses, if that can be supposed to be any pleasure to anybody, have been heavy. The RAF made another surprise attack on Heligoland. All came back safely. Mine warfare has not claimed quite so many victims during the last few days, and, as usual, all is quiet on the Western Front. One might draw neat parallels between the Maginot Line and Hadrian's Wall, or the Great Wall of China. 9pm, 3rd December 1939. Here is the news. Many listeners will already have heard with regret of the death of Her Royal Highness Princess Louise. This bulletin includes a short account of her life. Other items are, RAF bombers have successfully attacked German warships and a coastal reconnaissance machine has sunk a U-boat. The League of Nations has been summoned for the end of the week to consider the dispute between Russia and Finland. Thousands of parents have been by special train to see their evacuee children. The RAF today attacked German warships near Heligoland and obtained direct hits with heavy bombs. The Air Ministry, in giving this news, said that it was a strong formation of Royal Air Force bombers that carried out the attack. 
Considerable anti-aircraft fire was met with, and a Messerschmitt fighter, the only enemy fighter encountered, was shot down. All our aircraft have returned. The Air Ministry also announced the destruction of a U-boat by air action. When a coastal reconnaissance aircraft of the Royal Air Force was on patrol over the North Sea this morning, it surprised an enemy submarine on the surface. This was attacked and destroyed by a bomb on the base of the conning tower. Monday, December 18th, 1939. Today has been a day of great excitement. For Germany, one woe doth tread upon another's heel so fast they fall. It has seen the end of the glorious battle of the River Plate, which was fought last Thursday, December 14th. One of Germany's dreaded pocket battleships, the Admiral Graf Spey, armed with 11-inch guns, was engaged by His Majesty's cruisers, Exeter, Ajax and Achilles, commanded by Commodore Harwood. A running battle took place during which the Exeter was severely damaged and several of the guns on the smaller cruisers put out of action. But they hung on and harried the Graf space so badly that she was obliged to put into Montevideo for shelter. The exploit was a miracle of audacity and accurate gunfire, for not only were the cruisers much less heavily armoured than the pocket battleship, but they only carried six and eight-inch guns, respectively. The Graf Spey staggered into Montevideo and asked to be allowed to repair. She was given 72 hours to do so, which was a threefold extension of the time allowed by international law, after which she must submit to being interned or come out and fight. Fortunately, the Royal Navy was spared the task of shooting at a sitting bird, for after violent protests against everybody, calling upon all her gods to witness that Uruguay was favouring the British, she came out and sank herself in the main shipping lane where she might, even in death, be as much trouble to as many people as possible. What was otherwise a noble encounter was spoiled by this typical act of petty spite. The Germans are such bad losers. But this is not all. The Admiralty announces that on December 13th, the submarine Ursula sank a German cruiser on the Köln class, either the Köln, the Karlsruhe, or the Konigsberg, in the mouth of the Elbe and earlier in the week, HM submarine Salmon sank a submarine, sighted the Bremen, but had to abandon an attempt to sink her because of aircraft attack, but managed to damage as well the Leipzig and another cruiser. Talk about the King of Spain's beard. Hitler's whiskers must be more or less burnt away. Fritz is feeling so spiteful that he has attacked any trawlers and unarmed fishing boats and sunk six. But about eight million pounds worth of German ships have gone down to the bottom. And the men, theirs and ours. Oh, the pity of it. The pity of it. Nottingham Journal, 18th December 1939. Graf Spee scuttled. Pride of the Nazi Navy prefers suicide to battle against big odds. Sunk three miles offshore after explosion on board. Transfers most of crew before leaving Montevideo. The pride of the German Navy, the 10,000-ton Admiral Graf Spee, newest of the Nazis' pocket battleships, sailed out of Montevideo Harbour last night and was scuttled by her crew in the estuary of the River Plate. She sailed at 9.30pm Greenwich Mean Time after transferring 700 of her crew to another vessel and landing her wounded, and she sank three miles off the coast at 10.55pm after a heavy explosion aboard. Went down with his ship... Her commander preferred suicide for his ship rather than either of the alternatives, 
to meet the Allied squadron which was waiting for her, or to accept internment in the Uruguay port. Thursday, December 28, 1939. Otto Langsdorff, captain of the Admiral Graf's Bay, committed suicide in Buenos Aires last night. When he spoke for himself, he spoke like a good seaman and a gentleman. For lack of a better explanation, I like to think that this is his last protest to his ignoble government, who gave him orders not to fight. Too good a man to waste. The 32,000-tonne German liner Columbus scuttled herself off the North American coast to avoid capture by a British destroyer. It is learned from neutral sources that the other cruiser that the salmon damaged was the Blue Blücher. Sunday, January 7th, 1940. I suppose now that the new year has come, I must go in for a kind of annual stock-taking, especially as 1940 is likely to be so fatefully air. What better day could one choose than one's own 26th birthday? Christmas was marvellous. More marvellous, I suppose, than it had any right to be in these times. Theo and René came home, which they would not have done if it had been peacetime, and I refused to believe that there was any tomorrow or any world outside our own little family circle which seemed so snug and quite falsely secure. I was interested to read in a book by Sir Ian Hamilton an affirmation of the same idea that I have myself expressed earlier in this diary, that in wartime the circle of one's sympathy shrinks unbelievably so that it ceases to include any other one's immediate and most loved relatives. The mind becomes incapable of appreciating huge catastrophes. An example of this is the terrible earthquake which has taken place in Turkey. It happened on Boxing Day, and the loss of life has been awful. I tried to feel the magnitude of it in relation to humanity, but only found myself wishing it hadn't happened at Christmas, to cast a gloom over a festival season at which it was being difficult enough to rejoice as it was. This is imaginative prayerlessness, not carelessness. I am not careless. I never have been, and I never shall. It is simply atrophy, produced by these times so hopelessly out of joint. I mourned too hastily for Finland on November 30th. Despite unparalleled weight of men and materials hurled against them, the Finns still hold out and have won breathtaking victories. The accounts of these actions against the Soviet armies read like an apocalypse. Whole divisions have been annihilated by a handful of Finns, columns routed and enormous stores of equipment captured. But all this is the business of formal history. This is what will be recorded in books and discussed as proof of this or that method of warfare. What won't get into the history books is the story of a bundle of letters found in the pocket of a dead Russian. They were the loving outpourings of his half-literate wife, in which she told him how unhappy she was, and what a miserable day she had spent on the last festival day. But most of the letter was concerned with little Lonja, who wanted to know when his daddy was coming home, and asked that if daddy came home in the night, might he be wakened up so that he could see him. Daddy is dead, frozen stiff in a Finnish wood, because Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler have determined to walk the way of senseless ambition. Huge catastrophes have no power over me, but these small tragedies which means so little to demagogues and tyrants who demand them, have power to make me think and feel violently. 
I can't get out of my mind what I read about a child in the sinking of the Simon Bolivar, crying, Save me, Jesus! And little Longer without a father and thousands like him. English, German, Finnish, French, Polish, Czech and Russian. This commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Torbay Express and South Devon Echo, 27th December 1939 Earthquake Shocks What is described as a catastrophic earthquake shock was recorded at 1am by the seismograph at Bandani Observatory at Faenza. The observations appear to indicate that an earthquake had occurred in Armenia. The shock lasted for 20 seconds and was so violent that the recording instruments were damaged. A severe earthquake shock was recorded at two minutes past one this morning by the Zurich Observatory. It was calculated to have occurred at a distance of 2,900 kilometres, approximately 1,800 miles, and is thought to have been in Transcaucasia, in the region of Tiflis. In some Swiss observatories, the recording instruments were broken by the violence of the shock. Monday, January 29th, 1940. After a fortnight in Gloucester Infirmary, having X-ray treatment, I have been home for a week. The weather, no doubt as a result of the earthquakes in Turkey, has been amazing. Iron frosts and heavy falls of snow have broken down trees and entirely dislocated traffic. As a result of the weather, the enemy has been fairly quiet this month. He can't get out and we can't get in. But in Finland there has been tremendous activity. The Finns' resistance has been little short of miraculous, but the Russians have now taken to acts of terrorism from the air, bombing hospitals and machine-gunning civilians wherever they are visible. The Vatican Wireless, a not altogether unexpected ally considering the recent papal encyclical, has been broadcasting authenticated accounts of the hideous persecutions in German-occupied Poland. Never since the Jews were carried away captive into Babylon has there been such a story. No crime seems to be too horrible for the Gestapo and the worst elements of the German army to commit. 18,000 of the most influential people in Poland, doctors, professors, priests, leaders, intellectuals of all sorts, have been murdered. One's mind simply boggles at it. One would think that even the Gestapo could sicken of the bloodshed after all that frightful murderous campaign. The only desolate cry of Poland, which five months ago was a prosperous country with 13 or so million inhabitants, is how long, O oh Lord, how long? But in terms which one can assimilate readily by comparison, the Nazi form of persecution amounts to this. Under such domination in England, the effect on one's own family and friends would be something like this. If Theo and father had not been killed in the war, they would doubtless be shot because they belonged to the old reactionary army. Mother and Auntie Madge, Mrs. Wise, the Mebblethwaites, the Mrs. Jeeves would be spared because they have no qualifications outside the home and make no pretension to leadership. Uncle Percy would be put in a concentration camp. Dr. Chapman and the rural dean would very likely be a judge too well known and be shot. Margaret, being a force for good and a person who attracts others to her, would be eliminated. Likewise, Uncle Percy L., Diana, Arthur and I as intellectuals would be shot or imprisoned according to the degrees of our danger to the state. 
In fact, one can imagine that the mere fact of having been an inmate of Girton and taken a university degree would serve to sign one's death warrant. Lord Halifax might well say that he would rather die than see such a regime set up in England. Aberdeen Evening Express, 29th January 1940. 18,000 Poles murdered by Nazis. 18,000 Polish leaders, drawn from all classes, are estimated to have been put to death by the Germans in Nazi-occupied Poland, according to a Polish government white paper issued today. The white paper clearly sets out Germany's aim as the systematic extermination of the Polish population in western Poland, which is being carried out by the German army men and Gestapo agents. Saturday, February 17th, 1940. Theo came home, he being on a searchlight course at Shrivenham near Swindon. It is marvellous to have him, almost epoch-making to see him twice in two months. There has been a bit of excitement today. The Nazis are hopping with rage at the result of another exploit of the Royal Navy. Apparently one of the Graf Spee's supply ships, the Altmark, has been snooping round the Atlantic and the North Sea trying to get back to Germany with close to 400 prisoners of war on board. She was chased by HM's ships, Intrepid and Cossack, into Norwegian territorial waters and put into a Norwegian fjord. There, when two Norwegian gunboats appeared, it was suggested that a joint Norwegian and British inquiry should be held at Bergen to see if she had any contraband on board, and if not... She was perfectly entitled to remain in neutral waters. The commander of one of the gunboats assured the British commander that there was no contraband or prisoners aboard, and that the ship had been examined. Someone's palm would appear to have been oiled, or else he was stone blind. Whereupon the Cossack and Intrepid withdrew, but under cover of darkness the Cossack sailed gaily into the fjord, boarded the Altmark and rescued the hapless 400, who were battened down between decks, which were mined with time bombs. Boarding parties in the old style, and a good time was had by all, except the Bosch, who, having violated Norwegian neutrality by taking contraband, i.e. prisoners of war, into neutral waters, using them as a lane to convey the prisoners to Germany, are now howling to heaven that this is an outrage, that it is bestial, brutal, and Lord knows what. But the sinking of harmless neutral ships and the killing of unarmed sailors by Germany are legitimate acts of war. A very salutary lesson, on the whole, that two can play at piracy. The ship heaved violently, then shots rang out, and, and very soon the hatch was opened and a British voice called out, Are there Englishmen down there? And we called, Yes, we've come to rescue you. A British warship will take you to England, we heard. We cheered loudly and trooped out onto deck. All the Germans were guarded by Marines. These Marines handed out cigarettes to us. Wednesday, March 13th, 1940. It is not by any means the sole purpose of this diary to record Allied successes alone, or to indulge in cheap jubilations such as the Germans employ every time they sink a rowing boat. Today has been far from a day of rejoicing. It has been the blackest since the fall of Warsaw. Finland has capitulated after a defence worthy of Thermopylae, or on Skivales, to the most cruel terms on Russia's part. Vipuri, the Karelian Isthmus, Hango and the Mannerheim Line have to be surrendered by April 10th, and they undertake not to join in any alliance against Russia. But what is most horrible of all is that an Allied expeditionary force, 
was and had been ready since February 26th to sail for Finland, but was balked by Norway and Sweden, who, while professing all the tenets of the League of Nations and to be Finland's best friends, refused to allow Allied help to pass through their territory. Perhaps after the Munich affair, it may be said that it all becomes us to indulge in recrimination, but one may wish with complete sincerity that they may never live to regret it, as we have regretted Czechoslovakia. We tried to serve God and Mammon then, but it did not do anyone any good, unless it was that it taught us the terrible lesson that to serve God we tread no easy way. Added to this major calamity, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, an ex-commissioner for India, was shot dead by an Indian assassin at the Caxton Hall. This was presumably vengeance for the Amritsar affair twenty years ago. I hope it may be no worse than that. Wednesday, 13th March 1940, 6pm. Here is the news. The Finns have ratified the peace treaty. Fighting stopped this morning. The Finnish foreign minister has broadcast on the end of the war. Our observer describes the reception of the news in Helsinki. Mr Chamberlain has made a statement in the House of Commons. The signature and ratification of the treaty between Finland and Russia was confirmed in Helsinki this morning. The ratification was carried in the Finnish government by the necessary five-sixths majority in spite of the resignation of two members of the cabinet and the harshness of the terms. To summarise these briefly... Friday, March 15th, 1940. While Finland is evacuating one-eighth of her population from the areas ceded to Russia, a disgusting wave of face-saving has burst out over the neutral world, especially Norway, Sweden and America, who, having betrayed Finland to her doom, somehow have discovered in an occult way that Britain and France were to blame. Such an exhibition is, of course, of the greatest satisfaction to the forces of evil and destruction which are rampant in the world. Honesty comes alone from one stronghold from whence it may be expected, the Vatican. He either fears his fate too much, or his deserts are small, who fears to put them to the touch, to win or lose it all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lorna Lloyd's Diary of the War. Lorna Lloyd is played by Bethany Ray and the newsreader by Richard Godden. Catherine Stephen is the announcer. The War Diary was written by Lorna Lloyd. Additional radio news broadcast material was supplied by the BBC Archive, copyright BBC. Print news was sourced from the British Newspaper Archive, with thanks to the British Library and Find My Past, and from back issues of the Malvern Gazette, held at Malvern Library. The theme tune is an extract from César Franck's Symphony in D minor, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Richard Hickox on the 5th of September 2003, and also kindly made available by the BBC Archive. This podcast episode was brought to you by staff and students of the School of Computing at Edinburgh Napier University. It was produced by third-year students Alex Genks, David Graham, James McLaughlin, Andrash Peter and Michael Sutty, under the supervision of Ian McGregor. The podcast was directed by Bruce Ryan, with the assistance of Hazel Hall. The UK Arts and Humanities Research Council funded this work through the Creative Informatics Programme. Find out more about Lorna Lloyd and wartime in Malvern at www.malvernmuseum.co.uk and in the next episode of The Diary of the War.